Welcome to the Adapting Research Labs podcast. Um, this will be a special one, I feel, because I've actually prepared some more notes as I'm going to use this to think through some ideas that I'm going to share in a blog post uh, on behavioreconomics.com. Uh, it's a website for people that are interested in behavior economics and hosted by behavior, well, what do they call it, behavior economics guide. Um, so it's a meeting place for academics practitioners. I'm quite excited about this, I'll be honest. Uh, but because I've noticed that talking about things on this podcast helps me think through um, some of the ideas before I put them, before I even put them on paper, right? Because it's a different mode of thinking. Uh, I will use this. I'll try to still continue the the theme of how it applies to research, right? I'm a researcher, I'm interested in research, and so I think it will be a slight continuation of the previous few episodes I've done. But before I get into it, I just want to say I'm recording this on Anchor, and every time I log in and I see the, the there's a number that pops up on how many people have viewed in my last episode. And then it always flicks up with one up. It's, what are we doing? It's annoying and unnecessary, but I notice it still gets me a little bit excited. This is unnecessary. And I think this is to an extent related to what I'll be talking about, which is nudges and boosts behavior change and some of the ethics related to that, because I mean, why are we playing with with our emotions like this? I mean, when I see 11 listeners jump up to 12 and I'm like, ooh, 11 people listen to my podcast. Oh, no, 12. But that's not real, is it? I mean, there are always 12. There's just something on the design that says, flick it up so people pay attention. It's an attention-grabbing technology. Same with uh, one of the other Spotify, Anchor is a Spotify software. Spotify has got, um, when I, they did the redesign anyway, so I can't figure out what's where anyway. But the thing is that it pops up with a new episodes thing in my shows and it pops up. There are new episodes, but it always, it pops up and I click and this is not okay. I think within a few, years hopefully this will not be okay but i hope that the companies uh, doing that and the designers that do that and the people that research it as well uh kind of think think again because it sets very bad precedents which i'll cover on a much wider and more important scale which is climate change rather than just a simple design uh because i'm recording this during the COP26, I've been watching some of the the talks, which is uh, why I've proposed to behavioreconomics.com that I contribute with a a blog post, because there were two sessional sessions on on COP, on COP, at COP, don't even know why. We all pretend like it's normal. It's such a jargonistic thing. 
something of the parties. Uh, anyway, they're uh, out there discussing, negotiating, but also there is a program of events that are looking to inspire and sadly, in a way, um, make climate change about everything and anything. And I say sadly because it's a part of this festivalization of things that I've noticed. I was a part of it. I've helped set up a, a festival in a, in a city. I can see why Glasgow is going to benefit from this because, you know, it's inclusive. It shows everything. But I feel like sometimes when if climate change is about everything, then it's going to be difficult to move to action. But that's a side note. I'm not going to get sidelined. I still allow myself to have these views. Um, recording the podcast because it might help spark something something new but the the two talks were basically uh, focusing on behavior change uh, and one of them was highlighting uh, some of the ethical concerns and considerations with behavior change programs and Another one was actually talking about the, the application of behavior change, all with panels, you know, mix of people from uh, academia practice. So, in practice, I mean business and government, so that trifecta, and people being able to ask questions from the crowd, so uh, representing everybody. Um, and actually, on one of the talks, there was um, someone from Witch Magazine, which is a consumer protection, I guess, uh, magazine. Obviously, it's similar interest as they were discussing consumer behavior. So, where, how do I start this? The best way is to start with the first talk, which focused on introducing the distinction between two key types of behavior change interventions uh, known as nudges and boosts. They actually had uh, some of the people that in academia have introduced the idea of boosts. I don't think the other people introduced nudges, but you know, nudging is uh, introduced by Nobel Prize winners, you know, by Richard Thaler, and also the, the work around behavioral economics, the more um, philosophical principles and psychological principles of that by Kahneman. They weren't at the discussion, but they basically introduced uh, these two approaches which highlight two streams of the literature and behavior, behavior science, behavioral economics, most often uh, you know, cold. I still don't know where psychology and where behavioral science begins and where behavioral economics is. But on that Venn diagram, there are people interested in how other people think and behave. So it's a combo. When they say behavioral, actually, it's not behaviorism in the extreme sense where we forget about what people think and just watch what they do. There is streams of literature that actually, you know, look at what people say and what they do. So it's the combo. Now we have the ability to do both. But within the main di distinction between nudges and boosts, maybe we should just do some definitions. If I haven't covered them before, you know, uh, in my, I think in some podcasts I've talked about 
about it because my PhD thesis uses that literature quite a bit. So nudging is not a mandate, no, it's not law, it's not rules, and it's not monetary incentives. It's not the hard levers of changing society, right? It's not a heavy intervention. It's subtle and it works through something that in the literature gets referred to as choice architecture. And what is choice architecture? It's the options that we get presented with in our environment to pick from. You're never disincentivized for making a, the choice that is not recommended, not presented as the main option, but you're clearly steered towards an option that the person that's nudging you wants you to choose. So that's a nudge. That's a nudge. On the other side, a boost provides you the tools for you to uh, make a decision on your own and it uh, kind of still understands the fundamental biases that you might have because ultimately nudge theory gets justified on the basis that people are biased compared to uh, our potential for rationality and boost kind of respect that you know the research that's been done around biases there is already about 200 different biases uh, that have been discovered it's quite robust research area but its philosophical interpretation on that is different it, it does not then intervene paternalistically even though in the words of Richard Taylor it's libertarian paternalism that they do because they don't disincentivize you choosing away from what they recommend what the nurturers recommend but it goes one step further in just trying to empower people with uh, uh, tools uh, to help them understand the situation they're in and to make better choices based on that now in the uh, the, the main proponent of this way of thinking is Gerrit Gigerenzer and his collaborators. Uh, one of them was uh, Ralph Hertwig has uh, published with um, uh, I don't know what the name of the guy was. He was at the debate in, the, in COP Janov, I think, yeah, from Sweden. They've published together on the booth. Um, they basically try to get people to so boost people's intuitions. They actually take intuitions and the rules of thumb that people use more seriously, study them in detail rather than just studying the bias that is the outcome sometimes of the use of these uh, simplified rules of thumb that people use uh, instead of what could be seen as full rationality. And what's interesting between these two strains of literature is a key distinction between uh, in common everyday language, you know, rationality and intuition, where they often get presented as opposing, opposed to each other. And now we can actually see 
a new synthesis emerging from the great rationality debates in the in the 80s and the 90s uh, with Steven Pinker just had in this book. I'm, I'm still listening to it. It's from this year, 2021. Around uh, the ideas of full rationality or Olympian rationality, sometimes in academic context called axiomatic rationality by Gigerenzer, which tends to be framed differently from the perspectives of, you know, uh, is it in the person? So it talks about the human nature uh, and rationality. It talks about uh, how people can acquire knowledge. So it has implications on uh, epistemology. Uh, how do we know what's better knowledge than other? And often that has an implication on what we can know about the world. So. In these three kind of tiers of philosophical analysis, you know, human nature, knowledge, and the world. Axiomatic rationality uh, is, you know, in, it's in the best possible uh, world, is one of the things that maybe distinguishes us humans from others, right? This is a Steelman argument for it. We can, in, in principle, know everything about the universe. If you're axiomatically rationalist, you can believe that. And, you know, we can know about the world. How do we know that by the methods of scientific inquiry? And why are they better than our intuitive everyday? It's because they are more objective, they remove bias uh, by certain principles that Stephen Pinker actually outlines, and a lot of them are uh, principles that do try to counterbalance some things that we might have as intuitions because of our evolutionary background, which uh, satisfied us, optimized us for survival and reproduction rather than for thriving. And this is where there is a link between the, that field of axiomatic rationality and uh, what tends to be called ecological rationality. It's that evolutionary background, but then being read philosophically slightly differently. So again, at the level of human nature, it acknowledges bias, but when you take in the surroundings, the ecology of people together with them as one, uh, as a scissor of the mind and the environment, that are connected always, um, then you understand that bias is just the misapplication of mental tools to the wrong domain. So it's just a mis misapplication of the, the wrong mind to, to the wrong environment, whereas uh, so it, it captures, I think, a lot of the times of what could be deemed rational, but then uh, the misfiring is the application in the wrong domain. So then the key questions there about, you know, on top of human nature is how can we know the world about knowledge and wisdom? It's about uh, what, in the words of Gigerenzer, uh, how can we study explicitly in detail 
and the intuitions of, of people so that you can know in which domains they're applicable, in which domains they perform better than axiomatic rationality, which is almost like strict logic, you know, the rules of logic. So you're trying to figure out where shortcuts, fast and frugal uh, rules of thumb overperform axiomatic rationality. Uh, and this is kind of how you can argue for sometimes the knowledge derived in that intuitive insightful way being you know, uh, another type of knowledge that is more embodied, uh, it's more situational than the, the totally abstract and objective knowledge of, of axiomatic rationality. And ultimately we are seen as connected with the world um, so actually knowing the world outside it's well it's in principle again I don't see a limitation on our ability to know stuff apart from the fact that we can't know ourselves that easily. I think it just presents that self-knowledge problem. Hmm, I didn't think that through well enough. So knowledge of the world. I think it just has a, a methodological consequence, which is the methods that we use to know the world have to always acknowledge our position in it and how we are not ever objective. Yeah, uh, you know, even if you're a scientist, it's not knock down scientific knowledge is more systematic than everyday intuitive knowledge but the people that do that are still people with the embodied experiences and are are a part of the social structure right that's they are in the discussion of power you know that's why we have academics working with governments and businesses and when you bring it back to the to this discussion that's happening at the moment in, in COVID, that's why they have a seat at the table but it also means that there is a responsibility that comes with that uh, of how to be an engaged scholar and actually i think i personally um, you know, I've been thinking through how to approach this because I'll be, you know, posting uh, my views. I, you know, in, in the blog post, because I do think I have a view on which way I'd prefer. My natural tendencies and my research work leans towards the, the boosts, but in some of the work, some of the research I'm I'm currently doing. Uh, you know, I've considered the ethics and potential nudge work as well. So it's just that it's harsher intervention, so you have to justify it much, much, much more. So we have to be very careful with that. But uh, let me just get back to my notes. Yeah, so I've got a a note here that remind me to cover that yeah the, the key I think disagreement between 
the view that supports more nudges and the view that supports more boosts is not that much at the level of how can we know the, uh, of the world, the structure of the world, and how can we know the world, but it's more on there seems to be a fight for human nature. <laughs> and even they're not they're the same findings, it's just philosophically, it's almost like what's the action that comes out of it, right? Let's get really practical. So, at the, the expression of, of, of emotion, right, between the two, is uh, there's something about emotions, I think, that is central to this discussion between uh, whether we should nudge people or we should boost their skill set because especially in research when we see people from the outside what we can see is uh, some of the, the emotional expression but we can when we infer about their mental states even if we're measuring with uh, you know neuroscientific studies the way that we're interpreting this emotion which is kind of the I look at it as the iceberg of, you know, the top of the iceberg of what's probably happening. And it shows itself when it's negative, I think, when something isn't matching up for us. Uh, and I'm talking here from the perspective of intuitive design, where we try to kind of almost remove friction, which we tend to judge by you know, less negative emotion. You know, we remove pain points in digital design. So it's interesting to think whether this is actually a, a worthy, worthy goal or because the real world has a lot of friction. We're trying to create online world where there's less friction towards what, right? Um, and if you link it to the discussion about changing behavior for pro-social or pro-environment goals, then surely, yeah, you can justify them. But can you justify the harsher intervention, which is nudging, or the more empowering one, which is boosting. And I think you know this helps me think through what the blog post will cover, which is stuff that actually is from uh, you know some of my own philosophical training, but also a course that I did that's offered by behavior economics and so on, the ethics of behavioral science. And it's around the, the three key problems uh, when even considering both nudges or boosts or a combination of both. Which is, you know, the, you have to consider what are the goals of the nudger, whether you can preserve the autonomy of the nudged, and what are the second order effects that you might not foresee. So, and the first one, uh, and that first talk, um, uh, there was an ethicist, ethicist, an ethicist, um, that was um, kind of talking about the problem with. Hmm, I can't remember, it's a good example from the talk. But from the course, obviously there is the big question of who nudges the nudgers, which, you know, can go ad infinitum. It's 
turtles all the way down with once you start nudging who's gonna nudge you kind of problem which is something that's emerging as my new interest that i hadn't considered before but we tend to consider nudging individuals but how can we nudge um corporations they tend to nudge people um spotify is giving me a little boost towards the that's not a little boost sorry when i, I would have used so it gives me a little emotional boost when i get the numbers popping up or the new episodes are here but it also opens up a, it's a nudge towards going into the new episodes so it's okay for them to do that to me um, is it not okay for a government to nudge them by making it illegal to do that you know that's actually making it illegal wouldn't be a nudge apology see how very quickly things get extreme because you can see where my bias is <laughs> but the, i guess gdpr is a good example where certain type of thing was outlawed but then also there is additional guidelines for companies and in some of my day job where i'm working on um, research around the regulation change towards extended producer responsibility for packaging waste you know how far when we go in recommending and nudging people, you know, nudging companies because it's, it's a, it's a guide, it's a regulation that's changing, that is influencing companies, corporations, organizations that produce factor, not consumers themselves. And I think that's at the core of what's not helped in the climate movement, the idea of consumer choice always saving everything but actually you know even in the in the panel discussion at COP they did acknowledge that that it's not about just about the consumers and there was a chap from the Hero Insights team in the UK government that <laughs> mentioned that there's work to be done in not offering structurally in the choice architecture the bad choices you know why does a mom that has to think about being a good mom as a, as a social norm, oh, yeah, that's something that the ethicist in the previous talk mentioned. Why does she then have to care about making an additional choice about which detergent to pick up? And it's just not enough time, not enough. And why is the responsibility falling on her? So, that's uh, one of the problems. Um, then the goals of the nudger, I think. When we're talking about pro-environment uh, behavior change programs, there is a stronger justification. So I don't think there is that much of a concern there, uh, unless there is a desire by, by any of the nudgers to just say they're doing something just to brainwash. But I think that's something that was covered in both talks in a lot of detail. Um, because at the moment there is work I know from a, another talk that 
in the EU, there will be a taxonomy of kind of what does sustainable mean. So that will be formalized. And that could, could help. Uh -huh. Again, so the greenwashing will not exist. I mean, we live in a world where claims are our thing, you know, sometimes when they're ahead of legislation, yet out of control. They, they're not illegal, but they heavily suggest something in people's minds who infer stuff from pieces of information that gets put uh, for them can easily make make the, the leap of faith and then we all know when we see white packaging and clean things assume that they're clean kind of attacks that's it's a given or in the latest wild wild west where the online metaverse is the latest uh, kind of over suggestion of how much technology can really do for us i mean yes we've made strides but mainly in the marketing and explanations of an older set of technologies that have just been combined together but that's a sidetrack i guess uh, and then going back to the second order effects kind of the third ethical consideration that one needs to consider before setting off on a behavior change program um it's quite difficult it's quite difficult to foresee once you pull one of the straws in a mikado pile what else is going to fall off and because we deal with the outer expressions of deeper mental levels that people have in the world and the decision making is not visible to us in other right? and we can't foresee what else we change by changing something so uh, spotify doesn't realize it's getting me more neurotic because i'm expecting there will be something new when there isn't and all of these things are covered you know there for another talk on humane technology i think uh, if you haven't checked out the social dilemma and the work of Tristan Harris, have a look. He's got a free course online in humane technology, it's pretty good. It covers a lot of stuff I'm talking about in a lot more practical ways. But sticking to nudging and boosting for behavior change, for pro-environmental behaviors, I think the second order effects problem is actually probably the biggest one because at least I haven't figured out a way to even think about it uh, apart from philosophically so how do you get data for something like that I don't think you can apart from historically you look at the past and in the past I don't know if you've seen it there's just this new documentary on Netflix uh, about a group of French guys that uh, figure out how the market for CO2 emissions can help you in a VAT tax evasion and they drain the system for billions so this is is going to happen 
with some of the new policies that come in to encourage pro-environmental behavior. Uh, which is why I think in that area you could justify harsher behavior change interventions like nudges. But then again, all the other problems pop up that are there. But if you're doing it, you have to take responsibility. I think this is where I'm gonna stop for today because this is um, as far as I have. Notes. And I'm hoping, yeah, I've just got one more note that says moving away from language to back to the things themselves. So all the stuff I'm talking about might not make that much sense uh, in truly theoretical terms. And when I write it out, it's going to have a logical, more coherent structure to it. But I'm definitely talking about a real thing that's happening right now, live. Um, you know? We're being nudged and boosted from all areas for the better and for the worse. But I am concerned that it's done by people that have not had the sufficient ethical training to take the full responsibility of engaging in that. Okay, thanks.